Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program is recorded in front of our live community audience at Providence Baptist Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This June 2019 Science Cafe features a presentation and community conversation focusing on mental health in later life dealing with aging, loss, grief, and its consequences. Our guest presenters are Dr. Edmund Duthie, Chief of the Division of Geriatrics and Gerontology, and Dr. Joseph Goveas, Associate Professor, Department of Psychiatry, both at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Here first is Dr. Edmund Duthie. Well, thanks for coming out. So what I want to talk about are a few fundamental concepts of aging tonight. And um, I want to, by the end of tonight, when you walk out of here, you'll be able to know the difference between geriatrics and gerontology. Most of my faculty don't know that difference, but I'm going to anticipate that everybody in this audience will know that. And then I want you to be able to understand the difference between two concepts, life expectancy and lifespan which are quite different. And some of the biologists in the audience may know about this, but all of us at the end will know the difference between those two things. And the lay press mixes them up quite a bit. So you'll all be budding gerontologists when you leave. And then I want to uh, talk about aging um, and what is aging. And we'll have some conversation about that. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about disease and contrast that from aging, okay? so that's kind of my portion, and when I finish speaking, we're gonna switch the microphone over to Dr. Gobius. Okay, sound good? All right, so let's go on to the first thing and talk about geriatrics and gerontology, okay? So, um, maybe this might be a useful analogy. Dr. Govius is a psychiatrist, okay? What is the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Anybody want to help me out with that one? Yes, ma'am. I think the psychiatrist prescribes medication. Mm -hmm. Right. So the psychologist understands the basic fundamental aspects of behavior. And psychologists can study animals, uh, they can study humans. A lot of, a lot of psycho psychology work is done. Um, in the animal setting. So that's the fundamental science that underlies the practice, the medical practice of psychiatry. Does that make sense to everybody? So the same thing in geriatrics and gerontology. Gerontology is the science of aging. And most people who are gerontologists study biology or sociology or psychology and then go on and do graduate work in those areas as it relates to aging. And at the end, they say, ta-da, I am a gerontologist. And when I go to the Gerontological Society meeting every year, there's 4,000 people there, and most of them are not doctors, but they're those other disciplines, social workers, psychologists, some of them are who've studied aging, and then they're gerontologists, okay? So the physician that practices uh, medicine and takes care of older people is a geriatrician, while the science that underlies my practice would be gerontology. Make sense? I doubt anybody in this audience, and I know there's many college graduates here, 
uh, knew a gerontology major in undergraduate school. I suspect it may not even have existed in your universities. As we said, it's usually not a bachelor's type degree. You get that more in the graduate area. Um, now, the next question is, who can practice geriatrics? So that's a medical doctor, and there's only three specialties, at least in America, that are allowed to practice geriatrics, and you have to be certified to do that. And I'd like you all to give me a shout out as to what those specialties might be. So what specialties of medicine, there's only three of them, certify geriatrics? Internal medicine? Internal medicine, I'm an internist, so she takes the low-lying fruit, that's right. <laughs> so internal medicine is one, okay. Neurology is not correct. Somebody? Family medicine is absolutely correct. So internal medicine and family medicine actually take the same examination uh, to certify in geriatrics. Uh, so you need to go to medical school to get your MD. You do a residence in in residency in internal medicine or family medicine, and then you do a fellowship in geriatrics, and then you can take the exam and be a geriatrician. So that's kind of the path I went. And what's the other? So there, you've got two of the three, internal medicine, family medicine. What is the third discipline that certifies geriatrics? And it is Dr. Govius, right. <laughs> so Dr. Govius, psychiatry is the other discipline. So internal medicine, family medicine, and psychiatry are the only American Board of Medical Specialty uh, groups that certify uh, those three disciplines, okay? So that's the pathway into geriatrics. Any question about that? Make sense to everybody here? So we now know the difference between gerontology and geriatrics, um, and now we also know the disciplines that um, can uh, call themselves geriatrics, okay? Geriatricians take care of old people. Who's old? How do we define that? Yes, ma'am, who's old? Oh, you're, you're raising your hand. <laughs> so how do we decide who's old? So let's go to the other end of the spectrum, um, pediatrics. And when, was, when is it decided that, um, I see some young people here, uh, maybe they could comment, when did you stop seeing the pediatrician? 18. 18, okay. Um, so it's a number, you just pulled it out of the, out of the air, I think that's, Correct at Freighter, I think if you're 17, uh, they send you over to Children's Hospital. And we could argue all day as to whether that's right or not. It's very arbitrary. Same thing at the other end of the spectrum. We just pick numbers out of the air, okay? Aging is a continuous process. And so we're going to arbitrarily say that geriatricians uh, see people 65 and over. Where'd that number come from? Probably from Social Security entitlement, okay? And Roosevelt borrowed that from Bismarck in Germany in the latter part of the 19th century, okay? So these numbers just were kind of pulled out. But I will tell you, as a geriatrician, I get kind of nervous when they tell me we'd like you to see a 65-year-old because I'm not really feeling in my element. I do my best work in the 80s and 90s. That's where I really have a comfort level with the people I'm taking care of, okay? Uh, but we do dive down into the uh, mid-60s, all right? So it's very arbitrary and maybe it'll change, but that's kind of where we're at right now. Now as a geriatrician, I by and large take care of frail, vulnerable elders. That's because doctors like taking care of you. And they're going to say, geez, if everything's going well and you're 75, let's not rock the boat. 
Um, but when people start to develop a number of problems, it gets a little more difficult, and then we often get called into action. And the way we define frailty in general is kind of just slowing down and losing strength. And we used to say uh, frail people were thin, but we're, un we're now understanding with the obesity epidemic that people can be overweight and frail as well. That's kind of a newer concept that we're dealing with. So it's exhaustion, it's lack of strength, that kind of thing, okay? And these people often need help uh, with their activities of daily living, okay? Um, so frail elders often, we find them in nursing homes and we find them in home care. And so that's my turf, so to speak. That's where we go. Um, and I'm the medical director of the nursing home at the Veterans Administration. My faculty go to Clement Manor, and we have faculty at Luther Manor, and the medical colleges associated with St. Camillus. So those are the kinds of uh, populations that a geriatrician might take care of and serve. Um, we love taking care of, well, older people, probably not a great use of our resources, okay? Now, I want to ask you a simple question. Okay, the question is, are Americans living longer? Are they living, well, hold on, you haven't, I haven't said the question yet. <laughs> are they living longer in 2019 than they were in 1919? I hear a lot of yeses, and I hear some noes, and you're both right. It's a complex question, and we'll talk about that now. So, if we talk about lifespan, and I want to talk about lifespan uh, and define that for you. So anybody from the biology background or want to define lifespan? What's the lifespan of the mayfly? What's the lifespan of the elephant? What's the lifespan of a human? When we ask that question, what are we asking? Anybody want to give that a shot? Yes, sir. Well, the number of years between birth and death, though, if I were to have some bad luck and have a motor vehicle crash, and the number of years were 60-something, that's as far as we're going, uh, then um, that wouldn't be the lifespan of humans. That'd be my individual lifespan. So anybody want to elaborate a little bit further? Like, yeah, man. You're, it is an average. Lifespan is an average, but the average of what? No, not quite. It's the maximum that the species is programmed to live. That's lifespan. So if you were to say to me, oh, lifespan, um, I'll Google it real fast and Google the longest lived human, you could do that, and you'll find it's like 120 or something like that. But our, our student colleagues would say, well, that's, that's an anecdote. It's an N of one. So we want, as you said, ma'am, the average. The average of the 100 longest lived humans or 1,000 longest or whatever, you're going to have a comfort level when you average it out, okay? And that number turns out to be somewhere in the 100 teens, okay? So that's the lifespan of human beings. That hasn't changed since 1919. 1819? 1719? 19 before the Common Era? No, <laughs> it seems to be programmed into our genome. 
And those of you who are biblical scholars and read literature and other things know that there are references to very long live people in the Bible and other historical documents, okay? So it turns out that are Americans living longer in 2019? Some of you said no um, than in 1919, and you were right, because if you were thinking of lifespan, that hasn't changed, okay? Now, life expectancy. Life expectancy is the average amount of time that a person can expect to live given lots of things in society, you know, uh, uh, opioid overdoses, uh, given HIV, uh, given gunshot wounds, and all that stuff that goes into the equation affects our lifespan and diseases, life, <laughs> life expectancy, okay? Life expectancy has changed dramatically since 1919. Yeah, so in 1919, a baby born in 1919 could expect uh, to live somewhere about age 50 or something like that, okay? Now, a baby born today in Milwaukee, on average, can expect to live into their 70s or 80s. Now, some of this depends on gender. Can anybody tell me what the gender equation is? Women outlive men, that's absolutely correct. There is something about two X chromosomes that confers greater longevity. Or as we affectionately refer to the Y chromosome in gerontology as the death chromosome. Okay. And of course, if you're thinking about caregiving and the like, and I tell this to my daughters, it makes very good biological sense for a woman to marry a younger guy if you want to have a caregiver throughout your life. But women have this bad habit of marrying older men and vice versa which stacks the deck for widowhood, right? Correct? The biology and the sociology then come together a little bit. And so we know that right now in America, 75% of elderly men are married, while it's less than 50% of elderly women. And that's huge when we comes to us uh, in terms of caregivers and trying to maintain people in the community. So it's an interesting uh, connection between the culture and the biology, okay? So life expectancy really changed, and I want somebody to tell me why. What happened from 1919 to now that has really made uh, the difference? Yes, ma'am. The industrial age. The industrial age, and anything specifically about industrialization? Pollution. Yeah. All right. yeah, in the back. Vaccines, good thought. Technology, good thought. So infant mortality is a big part of the equation. Okay, think about it. If a baby dies, somebody's got to live an awful long time for the life expectancy to be 50, say, okay? So when we started to make dents in infant mortality in the early 20th century, and it was before antibiotics, and it was before a lot of technology. It might be tied in with that industrialization thing. I don't know exactly. It's not you know, an area that I study. Um, but we know one thing, that we have awful infant mortality in Milwaukee today, which is affecting our life expectancy. And you'll hear this in the elections. People say, well, what the heck's wrong with the American healthcare system? <laughs> life expectancy in America is X, while in Japan or in Sweden, it's Y. Well, the difference is infant mortality. It's a strange thing, you know, that something that seems to be later in life is impacted so much by something early in life, okay? 
and uh, Dr. Garrison can get somebody here to talk about infant mortality, because I don't study that, but just to make the point of what, how we've seen these changes in life expectancy, okay? Um, the life expectancy of people was getting higher and higher in the 20th century and into the 21st century, and it was going up and up and up and up, and babies were, you know, it was 70, and then it was 73, and then it's put in 78, and the curve stopped. Just the last few years, the curve bent and started to flatten out. Anybody have a guess as to why did that life expectancy not just keep going up? Yeah, ma'am. Yeah, you're right, the opioid epidemic has been a big player. So HIV put a dent in it to begin with, uh, opioid epidemic, and then suicide, okay? And when, you, when young people die, and they die in great numbers, then you'll see those numbers change. So it's been kind of shocking to see that. I never thought I'd see it in my career, but we've seen that within the last few years, okay? All right, everybody clear now? We understand the difference between life expectancy and lifespan, okay? And you'll see this confused in the literature, but they're really different animals, as you can imagine. So let's talk about life expectancy at age 65. Anybody want to hazard a guess? How many years you got when you turn 65? It does depend on gender. Women will have different, but let's kind of just ballpark it. What do you think? 15 years, not bad, it's a, you're pretty, pretty close, okay? Might be a little bit higher, but, and again, women will get a little more, men will get a little less, okay? And that has changed as well. Life expectancy at age 65 has changed in the 20th and 21st century, and there, now we've got antibiotics and some other things uh, that have made a difference in that regard, okay? So let's talk a little bit about the things that kill people when they're older, okay? So who wants to tell me the number one cause of death in late life? Cancer. Cancer. Yeah, and that just happened within the last few years. So traditionally, the number one killer was not cancer. What traditionally was the number one killer of older people? Heart disease. Heart disease was numero uno. And the curve with cancer and heart disease are crossing. And it's important to know there's a, a, a link between aging and cancer. I think most of you know this, but cancer is more likely to occur in older people. Yes, ma'am? Any particular type of cancer? Yes. So for men, prostate cancer. Uh, for women, particularly older women, um, we, start, we see um, breast cancer is still a big issue, but colorectal uh, can become important, okay? Um, and for colorectal, we know there are ways of preventing that. Uh, so you're kind of reading my mind in terms of some of the prevention. And forget the death, you know, what about the suffering that goes along with it, you know? So it's not just dying from cancer. Uh, you know, Dr. Garrison was alluding to the fact that we want better quality of life, and any of you who've been cancer uh, survivors in the audience here know what it's like to go through that. It is not very easy, okay? So we still think about prevention in late life because of that link between, and, and the incidence of colon cancer keeps going up as you get older. All right, so we've got two of the big killers. We've got heart disease and cancer. What's number three? Nope. Stroke, there you go. Number three is stroke. And then after that, it starts to tail off respiratory illness. Unintentional injury. Unintentional injury. What do you think about the unintentional injury? So for these young people back here, what unintentional injury kills you folks? Motor vehicle crashes, that took a microsecond, okay? How about for the geriatric patient? Yes, wow! <laughs> this is a sophisticated group, you are right. Falls, 
Okay, so young people, motor vehicle crashes. So if I have five minutes in a room with a young person and want to counsel them, it's don't text and drive, wear a seat belt, don't drink and drive. That's a high yield conversation in terms of mortality in a young population. In a geriatric population, when thinking about unintentional injury, it's going to be a different ball game, okay, because we're starting to deal with falls. All right, um, and then diabetes and Alzheimer kind of wrap up maybe the top eight or so, okay? So just to kind of let you know what are killing people in late life. Question, ma'am. Is there kind of a correlation between falling and acceleration? The question is, is there a correlation between falling and acceleration of dementia? I'm not aware of that, um, but if you hit your head, um, you can have what is enough times in particular. Uh, you remember what used to be called punch junk syndrome because people got too many shots to the head. Well, if you're falling and hitting your head and getting concussed, that probably could lead to some dementia. We call that traumatic brain injury. So there could be a relationship that way. It is true that people with dementia are more likely to fall. And that's probably related to the type of dementia, the coordination, paying attention to your environment, okay? Excellent question. Uh, yeah, influenza. Uh, influenza. So infections are kind of down on the list. Um, certainly something to keep in mind. That's a killer, that's a killer. So I would agree with that. All right, now, last, next thing I wanna talk about is the main topic, which is aging, okay? So I'm gonna read you a quote from Webster here. And it's defined as the process of growing old regardless of chronological age. Sounds like gobbledygook to me. I don't know what I can do with that, you know? So I want you all to think about, have you ever been told by a doctor, well, because of your age, we're going to do this? Or what do you expect at your age, okay? Um, so we sometimes hear those things, and I want to be very precise about what we might be talking about there, okay? So in biology and medicine, we would say there's three bullet points to aging, okay? The first bullet point is it needs to be a universal process. Everybody's gotta have it. Now, you better know these bullet, keep these in mind because I'm gonna quiz you guys in a minute, okay? So everybody's gotta have it, all right? The second is that it's progressive over time it kind of keeps chugging along. And the third is there really isn't anything we can do about it as we currently understand it, okay? Those are the three bullet points that we use for aging. I want somebody to give me some examples of an aging process. What can you go home tonight and say to your favorite octogenarian, blank is due to your age, and I want you to fill in that blank. So who's got something for me? Blank is due, what, what? Whoa, fatness. I know a lot of people who are fat, but your body is put together differently when you're older. You are right. So when you are, uh, let's say you weigh 150 today and you're 35. When you're 150 pounds, you weigh the same amount, but now you're 80, you're put together differently. You've got more body fat and you've got less lean muscle. And you may say, oh, well, yeah, that's because we're lazy and people don't work out. But I can tell you, in marathon runners, in masters athletes, no matter how much iron you pump, you will not be able to pump as much iron when you're 95 
as you did when you were 35, right? I mean, look at, look at peak athletic performance and the Olympics or the World Cup, okay? So here they have the Olympics and somebody's an ice skater and she's doing great and they say, she's gotta win the medal this time because she won't make it next time. She's 16, she'll be over the hill when she's 20, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what they say, and it's true, all right? I mean, look at the world records for the mile or for marathons or whatever. I mean, it's phenomenal that elderly people run marathons. They can do it, but they're not gonna be able to do it in the same time. And so we all know we cheat a little bit, don't we? And we have special categories. And we have the, you know, so the 60 to 65 and the 75 to 80, et cetera, to kind of level the playing field there. But you're right on, okay, in terms of the way we're put together. Now for us in medicine, that's really important because drugs distribute differently around our body depending on the way we're put together. So we have to teach the medical students at the medical college about these important principles because that has to do with the way we give the drugs and the, you know, the types of drugs we use, et cetera. In the back. Blank is due to your age. I love it. Wrinkling of the skin. That's a good one. So I'm getting a little wrinkly here. Uh, what's going on? I'm getting old. All right. But, but other things affect wrinkling besides aging, don't they? Give me some examples. Sun exposure. Right. Environmental. What else? Cigarettes. Cigarettes accelerate uh, wrinkling. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's right. Um, the, the, so you, you become, and that's a condition that's called sarcopenia. You're going to hear a lot about it. So we, we lose bone and we call that osteopenia. When we lose muscle, we call it sarcopenia, which is a medical speak for losing muscle. Yes, ma'am. A lot of people, we said you're shrinking. You lose height. That's a good one. As you get older, you get shorter. Okay, so you look at your driver's license, you say, yeah, geez, I was 5'11 when I was 18, but right now I'm 65 and I'm not the same height. And the height loss is due to the cartilage in between the vertebrae. So these cartilage, which are kind of shock absorbers, start to lose um, uh, water and they start to behave differently. And so that is uh, a good one for aging. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the joints aren't quite as flexible as they once were. Again, due to some changes in connective tissue, they don't have the same give that they once did. Okay, yeah. Would forgetfulness fall in there? So this is a hot one, okay? That's beautiful. And she's right. Um, there are changes in memory as one gets older. And the key thing for the doctor is, is that memory loss physiologic or is it pathologic? The Alzheimer type of memory loss, et cetera. And Dr. Govius is an expert in this and he spends a lot of his time with patients trying to sort those differences out. Um, so we know if you put an older person in a laboratory and give them time tasks, and this I still remember when I was a fellow and Ronald Reagan was running for president, that was considered old then. You know, look at the group that's out there now. We really got a gerontocracy. Um, I'm not here to make a political statement, but it's just kind of interesting. Um, and they said, geez, will Reagan be able to push the button fast enough? Uh, you know, and it turns out that, uh, you know, these are experiments that are done in psychology laboratories. It's very hard to extrapolate uh, to day in and day out living, okay? 
So uh, what I'm gonna leave you with is just think about that. All the things, I'm gonna challenge you to say that aging itself doesn't really affect us very much. We get wrinkled skin, we get gray hair, uh, we have some of these changes in our body, but that doesn't put you in a nursing home, that doesn't get you in a doctor's office. Disease is the problem. Believe it or not, folks, this is a good message. So why at age 50 do we have these over-the-hill parties and every, oh yeah, no, uh, who wants to count numbers anymore and everybody's whining and this and that? when really aging isn't so much the issue, it's those diseases. And we know there's certain diseases that are peak in kids, right? There's certain eye tumors and types of leukemia that only occur in children, you don't see them in adults. And the same thing, when you have people in their 90s, they have other diseases that tend to peak. Alzheimer being one, we already talked about cancer, okay? So I'm gonna challenge you to say that aging isn't really the issue uh, when it comes to our function. But there's a lot uh, to do with reserve. We lose reserve as a function of age, okay? And when we test, when, when is our reserve tested? When do you think you get your reserve tested? The average person. When does that happen? When you get sick. When you get sick. And when you end up in the hospital. Those are areas, or you have surgery. Those are major assaults to the body, and that's where you draw on your reserve. And that's why it's so important to hit those illnesses with your maximum function. So while you're here and you're doing pretty well, you wanna build up a cushion because you're gonna go to the bank when you get sick and you're gonna draw from that. And we find the people that have some cushion and reserve do a lot better. My favorite example of geriatric reserve and function is John Glenn. So I don't know if you remember, Senator Glenn wanted to go back into space. And I don't know how old he was, he's probably in his 70s. And they said, well, Senator, you can't do this. He says, what do I have to do? And they said, well, you gotta go through this training that. He says, okay, fine. He went through all the training. He passed all the training. They said, well, he's old, he passed it all. I guess he gets to go into space, so he went. Does anybody remember what happened to John Glenn when they came back to Earth? Do you remember what happened to Glenn? He went splat on the tarmac. So the effect of gravity had affected his muscles to the point. So these other guys are running down the stairs and Glenn Guinan gets down there and boom, he's down, okay? Didn't have the reserve. The geriatric person now in space, that's a stress, zero G, and they do stuff up there to try to maintain muscles, but they weren't able to do it so successfully. And of course, there are other things that were stressed there as well. What can we do to delay aging? <laughs> Is that a miracle So the best example, the best example that I can give you for extending lifespan, does anybody want to throw it out there? That is a great one. That is, the, that is the answer, but that's not the answer to my question. 1930s, these experiments were done with these rodents that had a certain intervention and it wasn't exercise lived 50% longer, 50%. Think about that in human years. You're on the right track. It was caloric restriction. So caloric restriction has been known since the 1930s to be the elixir of longevity. Oh, there's an old story about that. There's a 90-year-old man that comes into his doctor and he says, doc, my knee hurts. And so the doctor prods it and he palpates it and takes an x-ray, and he says to the patient at the end of the examination, well, what do you expect at your age? 
And the man says, you know, my other knee is 90 and it doesn't hurt. (laughs) So think about it. Presenting next, Dr. Joseph Goveas. Thank you for coming. Thank you for joining. I'm going to switch and talk about loss and grief. How many of you have uh, lost a loved one? Yeah, I got to put up my hands too. I'm here because I'm what I am. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm studying loss and grief because of my own loss. You see, I wasn't uh, born in this country. I was born in India. My parents, they both come from very poor background. And um, they were very hard workers, and they um, ended up uh, uh, getting some fancy degrees. And uh, they ended up working in the Middle East, you know, in a small country in the Middle East called as Qatar. And we are fly- I don't know if you have, anyone has heard about Qatar. It's next to Bahrain, Saudi Arabia. Uh, we have a base. The U.S. has a base there, uh, a military base. Um, we were doing very well. You know, I was a straight-A student. Uh, my brothers weren't bad either. And then when I was uh, eight years old, I lost my dad. And um, talk about... Uh, Loss. He was everything for me. You know, um, I was in sheer shock. I was numb. I was angry. I was uh, upset at the world. I was upset at everything I saw. But then, you know, I'm, uh, I was raised Christian. I grew up in a boarding school, and um, there was a father, bless his heart, um, Father Abraham Punoli was his name. I wasn't doing very well the year after my dad died. Um, it was a rather abrupt loss, you know, he had a, what we now call as a most posterior inferior MI, in other words, it's a pretty bad, uh, <laughs> it was a pretty bad heart attack. And he died, it was a misdiagnosis, and he died at age 44. So, Father, coming back to Father Abraham Punoli, this person, he walked up to me and said, whatever one loves becomes part of us. You know whose code that is? All that we love becomes part of us. Whatever we love, whatever we enjoyed in our life, we can never lose. It's one of the most beautiful codes. Thank God for that code. That's Helen Keller for you. Does anyone know Helen Keller? She was blind and deaf. What an amazing woman. And he asked me a question. What do you want to do in your life? I said, I don't know. He said, what did you want to do when your dad was alive? You were on a go. You were a straight-A student doing great. What did you want to do? I said, you know what, Father Abraham? I want to be a doctor. He said, why the heck do you want to be a doctor? I said, you know what, my dad was a juvenile diabetic. He 
never took care of himself. But he did pretty well otherwise. He made a small company, an international company, very successful. He almost was going to be a co-owner. He was a chief financial officer for an international company. He was doing very well, but he never took care of his health. So I said to myself, I know he never takes his insulin. So I wanted to find a way. He didn't want to take it because you got to actually poke yourself or have someone else poke on your abdomen. So I said, I want to kind of fix this problem. And uh, he said, why can't you be a doctor now? I said, I don't have an interest in doing it. Because you know what? I was in a state of shock. Didn't see the world. I was in my own cocoon. You know, I was in that shell. Everything around me looked very blurred. Everything looked different. Red looked blue, green looked white, and it goes on. And then Father said to me, happiness, Joe, is something very interesting. When one happiness closes, another one opens. And we so long stare at that closed door that we missed to see the one that just opened to us. Another code of Helen Keller. Happiness, joy, satisfaction in life. Close relationships, to me, my dad, brings us happiness, joy, meaning, purpose, satisfaction in life. You see, when we have that close bond, we are a different species. We are filled with self-confidence, self-esteem, and we can have 100 people yelling at us, and we can go home, and all that stress is gone away, right? We are able to de-stress very easily when we are around that individual, that close relationship that we have, right? And then we have a loss. Attachment, the love that we have just as we look at a person and what we see is what mostly attachment turns out to be in many cases. But it's not, right? It's in the heart. It's in our minds. That strength is what will lead us forward when we grieve. And so, Father Abraham told me, Joe, you got to find that purpose in life. The one that you had when your dad was around. And he just left it there. I don't know what happened. It just lit fire somewhere in me. And I'm so glad and privileged to be sharing this area with Dr. Duthi, one of my mentors too. He said, I research Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, I do. I went into psychiatry because of grief. I think I'm a survivor. I am a survivor. I'm a survivor of grief. I took up psychiatry for the reasons that I just mentioned to you. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist. You know, you talk about grief and losses that we might have to face when we age physically. You see, loss of our physical abilities. But we have a lot of losses, right? We pay mortgage to a home for 30 some years. Been married, God willing, for 50, 60 years, maybe less, and we lose. Lose our grandparents, 
in verse children, grandchildren, we lose, we lose, lose, lose. As we age, we really look at it. Nest egg drains, people move away, children are no longer children, they're adults. We are disabled now, losses are significant. But for some reason, losing that close loved one, that's tough, very, very tough. If you look at the United States, how many do you think die a year? Guess. You guys are better than many of my students, but it's a little bit more than that, unfortunately. It's 2.5 to 3 million. If you look at the world, it's about 60 million die worldwide. How many do you think grieve a loss of a loved one? Let's say we have one loss. How many people are sharing that one loss on an average? Yeah, the whole family, right? It depends on the family, but if you average it, it's about five. In some cases, it's more. It's 10, 15. In my case, it was uh, about 15 to 20, I would say. That's 12 and a half million individuals who are grieving at this moment. I need our prayers. I want to start by talking to you about a few terminologies that it's very important that we understand. It's very important. Let me not move any further. Losing a loved one is called as bereavement. You know, we kind of loosely use terms. We use bereavement, grief, mourning. We use this kind of interchangeably. They're not. They're not interchangeable. They have slightly different meanings. Bereavement is that loss of a loved one. Experiencing the loss of a loved one. What do you think grief is then? Slightly different, I said. Bereavement is the experience of a loss of a loved one, if that is the case. What's grief? Response to the loss. It's the reaction to that loss is grief. And then what's mourning? Yeah, you're very close. It is that process by which we assimilate the memories, the finality and consequences of that loss, pulled together into our memory systems. And we restart enjoying, having joy and satisfaction in life. That process, three terms we need to kind of make sure we understand. Yes? Yeah, I would call that an emotional response, and I'll get to that in a minute. That's part of grief. So Dr. Garrison asked me to give this talk, you know, I said, it's important that we do not confuse grief and depression. Very important. Grief is not a disease. Mourning is a process. It's a normal process we all should go through. On the other hand, depression with a big D, not a small D. Depression is a disease. So what's grief and how is it different from depression? Grief in its acute period is filled with variety of emotions. What can you say to me about what those symptoms are? Denial, someone said. So there are these different stages of grief that has been articulated. One done by Dr. Ross, she's got these five stages of grief. She talks about denial as being the number one stage. What else? Sadness, someone said. Yes. Anger, forgiveness, loaded terms. 
Guilt, hurt, bargaining, acceptance is what we want, right? You see, if you look at the different stages, denial, anger, shock, depression, bargaining, and acceptance, and you know, it seems like a flow through one stage to the other to the other. That's not how grief works. All of you who are grieving knows that. It's not that way. It comes in different forms, different intensities, and over time, we all hope we would achieve, and what we would do is adapt to that grief and achieve what we call as integrated grief. We think that we don't know what the time frame for all this is. We think that this should be achieved within six to 12 months after losing a loved one, but that's not something written in stone. It's not. So when we actually grieve, we go through several thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that can interfere with adapting to that loss. Our thoughts could include second guessing. We come up with what's called as counterfactual thinking. This is where we say, what if? What if I would have done things differently? I didn't do this right. I could have told my dad or forced my dad to take his insulin shots and go to the doctor. At age eight, I asked that question. You think he would have listened to me? But I did ask that question for a long time. We perseverate repetitive words and phrases and gestures that come to our minds over and over like a broken record. We ruminate about our sadness, our anxieties about what the future holds. And then we catastrophize the future. You know, the future is going to be miserable without that individual. Because we've never seen it that way before. We also have behaviors that we do. We avoid church. We're angry with God. Don't give up on that person. If you know that person who avoids church, get that person back in. But give that person his or her time to get back in. We crave for this person to be close to us. Proximity seeking is very important. We withdraw from the social gatherings that reminds us of this individual. Some unfortunately start drinking more, abusing prescription drugs, don't go to the doctor. In fact, grief increases the risk of heart attacks. It increases the risk of early death. It increases the risk of substance abuse. It increases the risk of physical inactivity, obesity, and suicides. Of course, intense negative feelings come through us, but we also have positive emotions when we are grieving. But not everyone. In fact, bereavement results in acute grief the good news is that 70% of individuals over the following year of the death goes into what we want that individual to achieve, which is integrated grief. The finality and normality is achieved. The consequences are ingrained in the memory and we start enjoying and having joy and satisfaction in life. But about 10% develop what's called as prolonged or complicated grief. What's this? Prolonged and complicated grief, imagine having the same intensity of grief symptoms that one experiences in that first few months after losing the loved one. 
four, one, two, three years down the road. Same intensity. Imagine what that person would be going through. He is going to die young. By the time these individuals reach my clinic, they are on tons of medicines. They have been misdiagnosed. They are no longer caring for themselves. They're not taking their medicines. They've had at least three or four different hospital stays. And by the time they reach me, their bad habits are ingrained in them of interaction with people, social withdrawal, anger and irritability, getting away from family members, isolating themselves, and so on and so forth. That's too late. I want to meet them at the earliest stages, not to throw pills at them. I want them to be guided in the right direction. And with grief support groups, specific types of counseling, specific ways of approaching these individuals, that's achievable. But we have no idea, among the 12.5 million individuals in the United States that's currently grieving, we have no idea in telling who that 10% is. We have no idea. That's what led me, thanks to a small foundation who gave me the money, and I said, I'm not going to throw that at Alzheimer's disease. I'm not going to throw that to study depression. I'm going to throw that to study grief and prevent complications. That's why I'm here. We are looking at ways to study that. And the goal is to prevent bad consequences. I want to leave you with acute grief is accompanied by positive emotions and humor. It's not where these individuals are always filled with negative emotions. Acute grief comes in waves, but improves with time, fortunately. Sadness and pangs of emotion triggered by reminders of the loss anniversaries happen. Emptiness and loss are very much ingrained with acute grief. Engagement and pleasure in activities is diminished. Depression is not that. People with acute grief also has small d depressive symptoms. They experience sadness, which is also part of depression with a big D. But that's different from acute grief. In depression, you have a pervasive and persistent unhappiness and misery affecting all aspects of life that is constant, protracted, and happens across situations. And the loss of activities is across all situations and could lead to suicide. Now, the important part is, I talked to you about how acute grief can result in prolonged grief. Unfortunately, things are not that easy to kind of separate because people who have acute grief also suffer from the big D depression. Studies that were done have shown that people with acute grief in the first few months of their acute grief period, about 33% goes through big D depression as well. Good news is that half of them gets better within a year without any interventions. But 15% could still have big D depression. That's different. You get it? Acute grief has small D depressive symptoms, which means there are some sadness when you were reminded of the disease. 
That's different from the big D depression. It's important that we are able to provide appropriate care, not blame it on grief. So let me wrap up. Bereavement, acute grief, and mourning are three different things. Bereavement is the experiencing that loss. Acute grief is the reaction to that loss. And mourning is the process. Acute grief comes with a constellation of symptoms that is triggered by the reminders of the deceased. And fortunately, in about 70, 75%, it gets better, but not in the 15 to 20%. And it's important that we provide appropriate care for those individuals. I'd just like to know, how is a person expected to grieve after the death of a loved one when companies give them two days off and then you have to go back to work? How do you put that depression and grief on the shelf for eight hours then afterward, you pick it back up? That's a tough question. You know, we are, we are faced with so many challenges in our day-to-day -day life. Not all work environments are that way, but it's very difficult to separate grief from your work and from your regular life that you need to lead. That's not in our control unless we end up losing that job. But what's in our control is the time after the work. What are we doing to help our loved one. What support is available after work? If work is not providing that, is the church community giving that? Is the family giving that support? Are we giving that individual the sufficient attention? Or are we avoiding too? Are we giving that individual sufficient space to grieve, but also at the same time being supportive and not forceful, giving space, for instance? Is there grief support groups that we can take that individual to? Does our church community have a grief group? Can we watch out for monitoring symptoms of grief? How bad is it? If an individual who is in the acute grief stages is able to function well at work, bless his or her heart. It's very, very difficult. But if that person is doing that, that's a good sign. I don't think we're going to be able to change work environment, but we can be available. That's in our control. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe. We invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison, co-produced by Brian Belmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir.